Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan and today's episode is One in Ten, Part Three, where we'll discuss the topic of statistics over a series of episodes with special guest Dr. Shannon Morrison. In this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Shannon, welcome back and thanks for joining us for another episode. No worries. So I'm not going to lie, I'm excited for today's topic because we're going to attack something that I typically suck at. We're going to talk about sensitivity, specificity, (laughs) I can feel your excitement, risk ratios and the number needed to treat. All very, very examinable topics that I think typically everyone hates. So look, let's start by unpacking sensitivity and what it means. So I'm going to start by saying that I also hate this topic. Oh, from a statistician, Mm -hmm. from the mouth of a statistician. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, I'm going to try and get through the whole episode without saying spin or snout. Mm. Challenge accepted. Okay. Mm. So we start with a diagnostic test. First rule, sensitivity and specificity are characteristics of the test. We're going to come back to that. Mm -hmm. They are basically ways of describing how well the test itself performs. So sensitivity refers to how good the test is at giving a positive result when it's meant to give a positive result. Mm -hmm. In reality, this is done in validation. It's done by performing the test on a group of people that we know have the disease Mm. and seeing how many of them test positive. Mm. Specificity is the other side of the same coin. So it refers to how good the test is at giving a negative result when it's meant to give a negative result. Mm -hmm. So again, in reality, you take a group of people that we know don't have the disease and we're seeing how many of them tested negative. Easy. So that makes sense. And how do we calculate sensitivity? So pretty much exactly what we said. So sensitivity is the true positive Mm -hmm. divided by the true positive plus false negative. Mm -hmm. So true positive and false negative, if you add those together, those are just the number of people that were supposed to test positive. Okay. And Mm -hmm. how do we calculate specificity? Uh, The opposite. So true negative divided by true negative over false positive. So the number of people who were supposed to test negative. Okay. And what happens to the specificity and sensitivity if the disease is very common or very rare? (gasps) Trick question. Nothing. The answer is nothing. (laughs) Hooray. So the population prevalence, which is just a more fancy way of saying how common the test is, has no effect at all Mm. on sensitivity and specificity. So like we said before, they're features of just the test. Yeah, okay. Which makes sense when you think about how they're calculated. Mm. If you look at the sensitivity equation, it only includes people who don't have, who have the disease. So it doesn't include anyone who doesn't have it. Actually, it doesn't matter how many people don't have it. It's not in the equation at all. Mm. Whether the disease is common and 9 out of 10 people have it or it's really uncommon. So 9 out of 1,000 people have it. doesn't matter because sensitivity is only looking at those 9 people who do. Mm. No, that makes complete sense. So look, when does the population prevalence actually matter? 
So in clinical practice, we don't usually spend our time knowing mm. beforehand that someone has a disease and we want to just validate a test. It's mm. normally the other way around. So we don't know if they have a disease and we want the test to tell us. So this is now where we talk about positive and negative predictive values. So mm. positive predictive value is the probability of someone having a disease given a positive result. So how well does this positive result actually predict having disease? And negative predictive value is the opposite of that again. So how much does this negative result predict actually not having disease? And this is why I don't want to say spin and snout. A test ruling something in or out is actually more reflective of positive and negative predictive values, not sensitivity and specificity. Mm. So as far as memory aids go, it's rubbish. Try oh, not to that use makes it. me feel good because <laughs> it used to make me so confused. Okay, and now we know why. Yeah, throw it out. Excellent. So look, Shannon, how do we calculate positive predictive value? So when we looked at sensitivity, we were looking at how many people tested positive correctly out of the total number of people we knew had the disease. So positive predictive value, we're now looking at how many people tested positive correctly out of all the people who tested positive. So it's true positives divided by true positives plus false positives. Mm. Okay. And how do we calculate the negative predictive value? Similarly, this is very predictable now. Yeah. Um, it's true negatives divided by true negatives plus false negatives. Okay. Alrighty. So just so that we're absolutely clear on how this all works, can you run us through an example? Sure. Wonderful. I wonder when I was writing this, I was wondering if actually this would become an exam question at some point. So hopefully, because then you'll know the answer. Um, in 2020, there was a little minor world event that people might be familiar with, the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. So we're going to start with the situation in early 2020. So disease prevalence in Australia was low because our borders were shut. Mm. So let's just say for interest sake, the prevalence of COVID was one in 100,000 people. And PCR testing, you can take my word for this, has a sensitivity <laughs> of roughly 90% and specificity of 99%. Mm -hmm. Sounds pretty good. So if back in 2020 you took a million people and you did a PCR test for COVID, 10 of those people would have actually had COVID. Mm -hmm. Nine of those 10 people would test positive. So that's sensitivity of 90%. Yeah. Mm. And one of those 10 people would have tested negative. Okay. Now, 999,990 mm. people don't have COVID mm. and 989,990 people would test correctly negative. So that's your sensitivity of 99%. But that means that 10,000 people incorrectly test mm. positive. That's mm. amazing, isn't it? Crazy. Mm. So from those numbers, 10,009 people tested positive. So nine out of those 10,009 were right. Mm. So the positive predictive value is nine divided by 10,009. Mm. So the positive predictive value is only 0.09%. Wow. Yeah, okay. 989,991 people tested negative. So that's the 989,990 plus the one person who really did have it who tested negative. Okay. So that means that your negative predictive value is 999,990 divided by 999,901, <laughs> which means your negative predictive value is 99.99%. Mm, awesome. So back in March of 2020, if you did a PCR test and your PCR test came back negative, you would be really confident that you didn't have COVID because you've got a 99.99% chance of being correct. Mm. But if your test was positive, it's actually still pretty unlikely that you didn't have COVID because the positive result... Um, positive predictive value was only 0.09%. Mm, okay. So what about now? Mm, so now disease prevalence is high. So we can say one in 100 people have COVID and we're going to do PCR test on a million people again. So now one in 100, so that's 10,000 people have COVID and 9,000 of them tested positive. So 1,000 of them tested negative. 
990,000 people don't have COVID and 980,100 test negative. So 9,900 tested positive when they shouldn't have. Mm. So we can do all the maths again. (laughs) We could probably upload this as a PDF so I don't have to read all these numbers. But your positive predictive value is now 47.6% and your negative predictive value is 99.89%. The actual test hasn't changed, but now if you get a positive result, there's a 47.6% chance of it being true compared to your 0.09% chance earlier. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So for the exact same test, as the prevalence increases, the positive predictive value increases, like we said, from 0.09 to 47.6. The negative predictive value actually decreases, but you don't really see that effect until it becomes incredibly prevalent Mm. so you know talking like one Mm. in 10 people so it went from 99.99 to 99.89 that's interesting so look what if the test changed and now had a very low sensitivity so how would that affect the number of false positives and false negatives we saw in testing yeah so now we have rat tests and we all know that they're different (laughs) got different brands different qualities people aren't so reliable at taking their own samples So we're going to say the new sensitivity is 60% and the specificity is 99%, which I actually did Google to see what the specificity of a rat test was. Good to know. Yeah. Anyway, we got our million people again and 10,000 of them had COVID. Mm -hmm. Now only 6,000 test positive, so sensitivity of 60%, which Mm -hmm. means 4,000 tested negative. Mm. And then our specificity didn't change. It was still 99%. So those numbers Mm. are still the same. Mm. As the sensitivity decreases, the number of false positives don't change, but the number of false negatives increases. So in Mm. this case, it's going to go from 1,000 false negatives to 4,000 false negatives. Mm. And you can take my word for this. We won't have to prove it because we don't have any more tests for COVID. Mm. We've run out. Mm. (laughs) But as specificity decreases, the number of false negatives doesn't change, but the number of false positives goes up. Okay. Mm. Okay, that's good. A lot to digest. Yeah. I like it. And a good real-world example. As well. yeah. So now we want to pivot away from predictive values, sensitivity and specificity and talk about relative risk or risk ratios. What do we mean by the terms relative risk and risk ratios? In fact, are they the same thing? Yeah, so there's a few ways to express risk. So firstly, there's absolute risk, which is what it sounds like. It's the risk of developing an outcome given a certain intervention. For example, the risk of dying of lung cancer in smokers is 3%. That is their absolute risk of that outcome. Hmm. This is kind of useful information, but to get a better idea of the magnitude of the effect of smoking on lung cancer, it's better to compare their risk against non-smokers. So non-smokers risk is 0.04%. Relative risks and risk ratios are the same thing. So they're a way of expressing risk of something okay. in one group relative to another group, hence the term relative risk. Yeah. Mm. And to do that, they're expressed as a ratio. So that's why the terms are used interchangeably. The relative risk of dying of lung cancer in smokers is 3% divided by 0.4%, so 7.5. So while the overall risk of dying of lung cancer is 3%, which doesn't sound that bad, mm. they're actually seven and a half times more likely to die of lung cancer. So that sounds a lot more dramatic. Mm. Mm. That's one you definitely use on the anti-smoking ads, I yeah. guess, isn't it? So let's say that we are measuring the risk of developing a particular disease in, for example, people who smoke cigarettes. We are told that the relative risk for people who smoke is two. What does that actually mean? So I always think of relative risks as just times more likely. So in this case, smokers are two times more likely to develop the disease than non-smokers. Okay. 
And what if our relative risk for people who smoke is one? What does that number tell us? <laughs> so in this case, they are one times more likely, which doesn't really make any sense, but it just means there's no difference. Um, oh, okay, cool. For any ratio, a value of one is the value of null effect. Okay. And if the relative risk was, for example, 0.5, what can we deduce from that? So they are 0.5 times as likely or half as likely. Excellent. So when risk ratios are presented, it's often in combination with a p-value and potentially also 95% confidence intervals. So how can we use p-values and confidence intervals to help us interpret the relative risk? So if we think back to our chat about hypothesis testing, and if anyone didn't write down the definition before, now's your chance. (laughs) P-value is the probability of getting the observed result or one more extreme, assuming the null hypothesis is true. So in this case, if there was really no difference between the two groups, the P-value tells us the probability of getting our result due to chance. Same conventions apply as before, so P-value of less than 0.05 is accepted as significant. And the same goes for 95% confidence intervals. So... If a 95% confidence interval included zero, then that's the value of null effect and that's when we say it's not significant. Mm. But with ratios, so risk ratios, odds ratios, anything as a ratio, it now becomes if the 95% confidence interval includes one because that's our value of null effect. Mm. In what sort of studies do we see relative risk discussed? Um, So it's most often used in observational studies like cohort studies. Okay. And what do we mean when we use the term odds ratio? So how is this different to relative risk or risk ratio? Oh, (laughs) odds. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. They're a bit of a strange concept. I think unless you like gambling, you probably don't really use odds much ever. Mm. So essentially risk is the chance of the outcome divided by all possible outcomes Whereas odds is the probability of the occurrence of the event divided by the probability of the event not occurring, which Mm. seems weird. I kind of might go through it in the sense like going back to a case-controlled study, which we spoke about earlier. Mm. Calculating a risk means that you need to use the total number of people at risk as the denominator. So you need the whole population. If you have a case control study, it's where you've got a group of people who had the outcomes, so the cases, and you're matching them to the ones who don't, so the controls, and you're looking back to see what exposures they had in the past. In this example, there is no way for you to know what number of people had the exposure. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that's why you would use an odds ratio because you can't work out a risk ratio for this. Yeah, because we yeah, that's that makes good mm. sense. Okay, cool. Does the odds ratio and the risk ratio give the same values? Um, So the short answer is no, but the nature of the relationship is the same. So if there's no difference or no association, Mm. then the odds ratio and the risk ratio are both one. If there is an association, the odds ratio tends to exaggerate that. So the direction doesn't change, but the odds ratio tends to be more in one way or the other. Okay. Okay. So if the risk ratio is less than one, then the odds ratio will also be less than one, but it'll be smaller. So the risk ratio might be 0.5 and the odds ratio might be 0.4. And same the other way. So if the risk ratio is greater than one, the odds ratio is also greater than one, but the risk ratio might be 1.2 and the odds ratio might be 1.25. Okay. It's all making sense. And typically how big is the difference between them? It depends how rare the outcome is. If the outcome is really rare, then the odds ratio is pretty close to the risk ratio, so you can use them interchangeably, which is nice for our case Mm. control study. It kind of all works out that they're perfect. Mm. Um, But as the event rate goes up, then the difference becomes more extreme. 
And lastly, because we're running out of time spectacularly again, I can see a theme developing. So can you explain what is meant by the terms number needed to treat and number needed to harm? So these are other ways of describing your results, but giving it more of a clinically meaningful context. Mm -hmm. Um, So the number needed to treat refers to beneficial effects. You usually see NNT rather than NNH. Mm. An NNT of 10 means that you need to treat 10 people to see one of them benefit. So it's one divided by the absolute risk reduction. Mm-hmm. So say a drug reduces your risk of post-op vomiting from 0.5 to 0.4, your absolute risk reduction is 0.5 minus 0.4, so 0.1, mm-hmm. which means your number needed to treat is one divided by 0.1, which is 10. So if you gave 10 patients this drug, you'd prevent post-op and vomiting in one of them. The number needed to harm is basically the same thing, but it's referring to negative effects. So number needed to harm of five would mean you'd need to expose five people to see that negative effect in one of them. Okay. That's brilliant, Shannon. It makes a lot of sense. Any questions, Kate? No, (laughs) which is shocking because normally I have a billion questions when I talk stats. So this is exciting. You're like, so back to spin and snout again. (laughs) I will never use those terms again. Wash my mouth mouth out with soap if I do. So, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us and helping us all understand a little better. Uh, We still have a few more topics to cover, so can we get you back for one last episode? Maybe we can look at whether the average number of listeners stays the same as this goes on. (laughs) (laughs) And which episodes are more popular. Excellent. (laughs) That sounds like fun. We've had a great discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions or you just want to say hi, you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. And consultants and fellows, be sure to claim CPD for listening to today's episode. Instructions are in the episode notes. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.